Hi, everyone. Before we start today's show, just a quick note. This episode of the NFL Films podcast, which will focus on Larry Fitzgerald of Football Life, was actually recorded late in the regular season. So we won't be talking about the departure of Cardinals head coach Bruce Arians because he hadn't retired yet. We won't be talking about the Super Bowl, which has just happened in real time but hadn't happened back when we recorded. But we will be talking lots and lots of Larry Fitzgerald, A Football Life, a film which premiered in the season but will re-air this week, Friday, February 9th at 6 p.m. Eastern on NFL Network. You can also watch it on demand on NFL Game Pass at gamepass.nfl.com. That's gamepass.nfl.com. And this Friday, February 9th, NFL Network, 6 p.m. Eastern, Larry Fitzgerald of Football Life. And one podcast programming note, be sure to check your feed every Wednesday in February for a new NFL Films podcast covering a different episode of A Football Life from last season's slate. So this Wednesday will be Larry Fitzgerald. Next Wednesday, February 14th, Valentine's Day, fall in love with Wes Welker of Football Life's podcast. The 21st of February will be a Football Life Eddie George, and the 28th, Wednesday the 28th, will be a Football Life Jim Kelly. Each of those episodes will feature a discussion of the film with the producers of the film and also an interview with the subject, the player who was featured in the film, reacting to his A Football Life episode. So we got a full month of NFL Films podcast coming up for the first month of this football offseason. Enjoy all those, starting right now with Larry Fitzgerald of Football Life, the NFL Films Podcast. Today on the NFL Films Podcast, we'll discuss Larry Fitzgerald of Football Life with the producers of the film, Chris Barlow and Steve Trout. We'll talk to Larry himself, the one and only Larry Fitzgerald. And we'll talk to noted NFL Films guru, Greg Cosell, about Larry Fitz, a goat walking among mere mortals. I'm Paul. I'm Keith. Welcome to our show. This is an exciting day, Paul. It's not often you get to speak firsthand with someone of the caliber of Larry Fitzgerald. In fact, I didn't get to speak with him, uh, which is going to make it even more exciting for me to hear it. Forget Fitz. We got... Chris Barlow oh. here today. We've got the goat sitting right here with us. You think we should skip Larry? Well, Larry's fine. Trout, I'm worried about. Thank you. I can Steve hear you. Steve Trout, the director of Larry Fitzgerald of Football Life, and the aforementioned Chris Barlow, possibly the greatest producer in NFL films wow. history. Wow. We've gone to hyperbole in the first 30 seconds. That's our specialty, Barlow. You know that. <laughs> Welcome, guys. Thanks for having nice us. Nice to be here. Well, we're here to talk about your film. We had the opportunity to talk to Larry about your film, which is something we've had the fortune of doing, Keith, on this show, is hearing the reaction of the subject to his show. And today we're actually going to start the show with that conversation. This is a uh, conversation you guys had. Were you both there? Yes. Chris and Steve were there. I was not. Keith was there. The three of you spoke with Larry Fitzgerald uh, and got his first take response to this film which he for so long hoped would never happen (laughs) but it did we're going to talk about that and we're going to hear uh, from him on that topic so here it is Larry Fitzgerald on Larry Fitzgerald A Football Life
So we are here with the one and only Larry Fitzgerald. And Larry, you're with the director of your football life, Steve Trout. I'm not familiar with who that. Who, I'm not familiar <laughs> with you're, him. You're, you're a jerk. <laughs> you're a jerk. The producer of your football life, Chris Barlow. And myself, I'm Keith Cosro. Chris and I produced the whole series of Football Life, and we are so excited okay. that you agreed to do this film. So, And thank you for spending a few minutes with us. Absolutely. So you watched the show. What would you think? Give feedback to Steve and, and Chris. I thought, it was, I thought it was very well done. Uh, um, you know, you, you watch it in anticipation, you know, not knowing what to expect and, you know, what angle – it's going to be used and, um, you know, just hearing some of the things that, that people say that are close to you um, about experiences that they've had with me. Um, you know, it was, it was really humbling, you know, I, you know, seeing the pictures of my mother and, and, you know, just the whole thing was just really, really well done. It was classy. And, you know, I, you know, from watching other ones in the past, you know, I knew it was going to be well done. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, surprised by the fact that it was first quality. What did we miss? What's not in the film that you wanted to be in it? Me hoisting the Lombardi Trophy is about it. About the only thing. <laughs> but every, everything else you guys covered it and, and covered it well. Um, it was extremely well done. You saw this, Larry. I, I, we're, we're thrilled you liked it. This was not an easy sell for you. It took us a while. Uh, you, and, you and I, a year, year and a half to get you to say yes. Are you glad you did it? Yeah, after after watching it, I really am. I, I I'm I'm extremely happy that I did it. Um, you know the way it was done, and you know it encapsulated so many wonderful times and memories, and you know from my high school coaches to my father, and and you know you know the comments that Agent Wilson and Carson Palmer, you know stuff like that that you probably would never have been privy to unless it was you know put on tape. I think um, you know really, really uh, made me appreciate it even that much more. So I'm, I'm extremely happy that you that you force-fed it to me, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> but you are, like you said, you're not a not a media, me-first spotlight guy 13, 14 years in. Why is that? Why was it so hard for you to say yes? And I love that quote you used from Derek Jeter, if you want to you know, tell listeners about that. But why is it that you, you stay so private and this was such a hard thing for you to agree to? Well, for me, it's... It's uh, it's difficult for me to, I don't know, just um, kind of take it that serious because it's a team game. If I was Michael Phelps swimming in a swimming pool, if I was you know Tiger Woods hitting, making birdie putts, like that is that those guys are winning it for themselves and in individual sport. But for me to have success, so many other people have to be doing their jobs. You know, for me. Uh, Know, to be able to do that, you know, every single catch up has somebody's had to throw it to me. A line has had to protect. I mean, I've had to get open. You know, there's so much has to go into your success on the football field. So, I just never really felt comfortable, like just like taking that and saying, "No, it's me, me, me." No, because it's not. So, that's that's the, the stuff I've struggled with. So, what was the moment when you decided, "Okay, let's do this. The time is right." I think the older you, the older you get, you, you start to think like man I, I just because when you're in the moment you, you never think it's going to end you know you know how it is it's in reality it's, it's going to it's going to pretty quickly um and and i want to be able to look back and say wow look you know i have something done um you know by by nfl films who's done it the best uh you know to be able to do 
something like that. It, it's uh, it was enticing, and, and it, overall, you know, it's kind of made me, you know, tilt in the direction to go forward with it. Steve <laughs> says you're ready to start wearing wires in games, Larry. No, no, I let my teammates do that stuff. <laughs> so, th- well, that that brings up a good question. You've never worn a wire in a game. Why is that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm a, I don't like working with the feds. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Don't call us that, man. We're the good guys. Really? Yeah. Hey, you did wear We got you to wear one in practice your first time ever. Yeah, and then you got me saying a whole bunch of crazy stuff out there and got me in trouble. No, it, that the, only the good stuff. That that stuff you, never sees a lot of day. teammates calling me a sellout and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> After 13, 14 years, one time, that's okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, as I've told you for three years now, Don Shula's quote to us his biggest regret in football, in his football life, is that he never wore a wire. I don't want you to beat Don Shula in 50 years, Larry. Man, if I'm Don Shula in 50 years, you won't hear me complaining. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I, have, I have multiple steakhouses around the, around the country. <laughs> Super Bowl champ, Hall of Fame, winning his coach all the time. I mean, I, I think that would be just fine being Don Shula. I'm serious. Do you think that you could ever go into coaching? When? No, no chance. Why not? I just have I have the time they have to put in and the hours and the egos management of that stuff is not even close to something that I will find enjoyable. What do you see yourself doing after, after you're done? I'm not sure yet. I'm still kind of trying to figure it out. Larry, you, you said in the film, um, you want to become a scratch golfer. How, yeah, that's, that how, is for sure. Priority. How, how close are you to reaching that goal? Far. I'm about a six right now. So I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting closer on the front. <laughs> You're a six on the front, aren't you? <laughs> Steve, what, what would you say? What, what would you rate my, my game? Well, I, I've only seen you in a simulator, which is a, you know, I've never seen you out on the, on the course because you refuse to play with me. Oh, that's right. But, hey, wait till you see um, Peter King came with me to to um, St. Andrews this year. I know. Okay. Oh, you hang out with Peter King on the golf course, but not Steve Trout. <laughs> no, he came all the way over to Scotland with me. I went to London with you. <laughs> I know, but you knew I was playing golf in London, and you did, you had no desire to come out with me. Oh, you had a foursome. You, you revisionist you no, history, you my no friend. no desire to come out. You could have brought the Steve, um, Peter King didn't play. He just walked eighteen and watched me. Larry, I've played with Steve. He he would <laughs> it would turn into a five hour round if you brought him along. So you're better <laughs> off without him. Well, I have a question because now two years ago we were doing all or nothing with the Cardinals. And Steve was the director of that project. I was back here on the other end producing it. And every day we would ask Steve, what are, what are you going to get? Um, how's it going with Larry? And, and he would say, I have nothing to report. And that was pretty much the story for the entire season. <laughs> and there's Mark Dalton said, um, Larry's approach to all or nothing was nothing. Much more than all, yeah. <laughs> The question is, if we were going back in time, knowing what you know now, and we're doing it again, would you, would you do anything more than you did at that time, or um, would you take the same approach? Um, yeah, I would. I would definitely, you know, replay one game. That's it. And just try to try to go back and play against the Carolina Panthers. That's the only thing I would do differently. Um, no, but I like. Just, I was happy for you know guys like David. It was, you know, it was a coming out party. You know, allow him to. I had my, I've had my time. I've had my shine. You know, it's. I'm perfectly comfortable with other other guys. You know, being a little, you know, having more of the spotlight. That's that's not something that ever bothers me. So, 
when I watch the series, I look at it, you know, I'm I'm happy with everything, the way it turned out. It looked good. It put our team in a great light, and you know, I think it set, set the bar pretty high. So as, as you um, go through a season that certainly had unexpected ups and downs like this one, do you think about your career, where you're headed in the future, or in the middle of a season, or are you just completely dialed into this season? Oh, no, completely dialed in. Just nothing, nothing comes in my mind thinking about anything. I'm just focused on what I can control, and um, that's not next season, that's not next week, that's just today, and uh, that's what I think about. One other question, there, there, you know, we did the Emmett Smith football life this season as well. And, and and that that one is the highest rated episode of this season and and um, up till now so far so far but till Friday in that film there was a great section about his time in Arizona and the impact he had on you and Anquan and and Adrian Wilson and some of the other guys who were coming in at that point um, but it's interesting to see you come from that point to where you are now do you. Do you take it upon yourself to try to have an influence the way Emmett did on you? Yeah, I try to do it exactly the same way Emmett did because Emmett Emmett's not one of those guys who, um, you know, was really like fits watch me what I'm doing. Just you know, you take note. You know, this is I'm the best that ever do. He, he wasn't like that. He just kind of was very laid back, and you know, I'm I was really just curious and um, wanted to see you know how he was able to have success. Obviously, I saw it on the field, but I wanted to see what he did off the field and. I tried to follow his uh, his lead the best I could, you know, from what he ate in the morning to the way he watched film to the way he practiced to the way he dressed, you know, um, going and coming to a game. So I tried to implement all of that. The other veteran that comes across in your football life as having a major impact on your career is Kurt Warner when he arrived. How would you characterize Kurt's impact on your career? Um, I think he was probably the most uh, pivotal person you know I've ever played with because I was just the point I was at you know 21 years old I just I didn't know that I didn't know and having somebody like him with his credentials you know demanded that respect and so I um, I just really I really needed somebody like that you know early on in my career you know he, he helped me immensely you know on a, as a professional and. Um, with my technique and my mental approach to the game and, um, you know, challenged me often. Something I really needed, you know, there's no way I would, you know, be talking to you right now if it wasn't for, you know, him and his tutelage. Larry, I'm just curious, when you watch the film and you, you, you see footage of yourself playing football from the time you're in high school to now, um, what's what's the experience like for you watching you know you as an 18 year old you at Pitt you you in your first couple years in the NFL do those memories come flooding back and you know does it do, do you notice differences um in the way you play the game now compared to looking at yourself back then um yeah they do I'm kind of weird and I remember details from every game I've ever played and you know you if you throw on a a game with me in in Pop Warner or high school or college you know I, NFL, I, I, I remember catches and routes and different things that have, that have happened. So, um, you know, when I'm seeing this, it just the memories just come flying back. And, you know, I remember, you know, there was a catch I made there in high school. I remember, you know, walking down the railroad, you know, with my head coach and him 
telling me this is one of those games that you know that big big players make make big plays in, and you know just conversations like that, or you know going down to Texas A and M. Remember um, the the coach, head coach from Syracuse, name is Dino Babers, and he was um, one of our coaches on our staff, and he had been fired by Texas A and M the year before, and. I remember his his speech, his his pregame speech in the locker room. How passionate he was, how emotional he was about the importance of this game for us as a team, and also for him. And after the game, presenting him with the game ball, you know, just like I remember all of those things, you know, uh, vividly. On a personal note, uh, and we, we're going to wrap things up here, but as a lifelong uh, Pitt fan. I think that you're not winning the Heisman Trophy is one of the <laughs> lost my faith in the Heisman Trophy forever. <laughs> you know, me, you you share that same sentiment that I do. <laughs> it's, funny, it's funny. Um, it's funny. Adrian Adrian Peterson says the same thing. How he was robbed too. So, I mean, it's it's a bunch of guys who you know have been holes over the years. It's a it's a travesty. It's an when I saw the first cut of the film. That, that Chris had edited that part. And Chris, when, when Chris started editing, we said, I said, there's got to be the greatest montage of Larry at Pitt that there's ever been in this film, which I think there is. And Chris yeah. is an amazing editor. But, but then also we have to make sure that the world knows that he should have won the high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, Larry, thank you so much for taking um, some time. We know you're on a short week and you're in the middle of a season. And, and we just want to thank you again. Uh, for taking the time to make this film and, and uh, it's everything we hoped it could be and we hope you feel the same way. It was great and, and um, you know, it was a real joy to be able to work with you and, um, and the staff and, uh, you know, it, it turned out beautifully and I just want to thank you from, from me and my family, you know, for, you know, just putting me in such a positive light and um, I'm looking forward to the debut. I mean, because of you, Trout is going to get to work here for another year probably. <laughs> Man, you know he, he got to he got to spend some more time with his kids. His kids don't even know him, man. Oh, man. Oh. You know you know what his nickname was, right? Uh, yeah, let's let's make that public. Great. Go ahead, let's hear. He, it. he never told you what his nickname was. He might have mentioned it, but I forget. They call him call him Deadbeat because he's never at home with the family. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Man. I know his wife Allie will be thrilled Note to hear to that. Sound. Yeah, keep keep giving your money to Carson and Pat Pete on the course, man. <laughs> All right, thank you, Larry. Thanks, Larry. Right, thank you, you guys. Take take care. So really, so many places to begin when you talk to someone like Larry Fitz. But I want to begin with a dedication Mm -hmm. to Steve Trout's wife and family, (laughs) the unsung heroes of this film. Steve, I mean, we'll get into how close you are with Larry as revealed by his ready willingness and ableness to just come out and call you a deadbeat uh, in that conversation. But first, thank you, Mrs. Trout. Thank you to the kids, all the rest of the the support staff in your household who let Steve pound the pavement, get on the planes, and complete his courtship of Larry Fitzgerald, <laughs> uh, which resulted in this show. You guys are pretty close, huh? You and you and Larry. Yeah, you know, it's been I guess two and a half years, and I think that's I'm grateful for that because he's a good guy. But it started with him almost every day. I'd go to his locker during All or Nothing with the Cardinals in 2015 trying to get him to do more for the show. And he would – first defense was no. He would go down the line of all the w- other wideouts in the room. Have you done him? Have you done him? Larry, we've done all that. It's your turn. No, it's not. No, it's not. Deadbeat. What are you doing here, deadbeat? Then he, his way of deflecting was making fun of me that I was there all the time and not at home with my kids. 
I tell my wife and she's like, he's being mean. I'm like, no, he's not. That's the way he was testing me. I think that's the way he was, you know how guys are. We, we kind of make fun of each other. So it didn't well, bother me at all. I mean, was ma- he mean? They, was ma- he like a, was they he like make a- fun of you. Right. 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 <laughs> okay. He didn't mean it at all, but he was just, I don't, that, that's his way. He's so private. He don't want to keep talking about himself. He wanted to talk about me. So I didn't take it personally at all. In fact, my kids drew him a picture for Christmas that year. He drew a, what he, my son's best attempt at Arizona Cardinal in the 11 jersey. And I gave it to him, and Larry loved it. But that egged him on more. Oh, so I see you're here for Christmas. Now, I wasn't there for Christmas, but it was close to it. So he kept trying to dig at me like that. And then there's one story one day late in the year, and we're trying to get him. And I keep calling back to Keith, and I say, we're getting – I think the needle's moving. I think the needle's moving. We're walking through right by the weight room. Why? Get, what was the indication you were – You were because the, there was a thought we, happening. We would get in these long talks in his locker about – Football was maybe 1% of it. Golf or what's going on in the world or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. and It was and, great. Trout would call. And I, I had a great conversation <laughs> with Fitz today. And we, and we, was, was it on it, camera? Was, nope. was, it, was the camera rolling, Trout? <laughs> Camera's no, nowhere near. No, no, no. But you had to go baby steps with this guy. And then one day I hear, deadbeat. I'm like, oh, Lord. And I look. And he's down the hall. He goes, come here. What are you doing? I'm like, nothing. We were, I think, walking from a press conference to the locker room. And he essentially picks me up. And almost carries me out of the building. And I look back to my crew, like, tell my kids I love them. I don't know what's going on. We go to his car, and I sit in the passenger seat. We drive. We're talking about golf. We're talking about politics. We're talking about kids being dads. I have no idea where we're going. All of a sudden, he pulls into a parking lot. There's a little kid with what looks like a teacher. Back door opens. He's picking up his son. It was Devin at the time, I believe. So Devin walks in, gets in, and goes, hey. I'm like, hey. Larry's kid. Um, he goes, say hi to Mr. Steve. Didn't call me Mr. Deadbeat. And we drove around again for about 20 minutes. He pulled, slowed down in front of the, back in, the, uh, in front of the facility, dropped me off. And I think looking back, that was a test. That was um, to make sure I wasn't there to, I don't know what it was. And I've talked to him about it. And he's like, yeah, you know, that's something he doesn't normally do. We still didn't get anything from it. <laughs> yeah, 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 so I he says, I got great news. Went on a really long car ride. With Fitz today. And car rides on these shows, you know, are like, this is, a, a car ride has become a trope in, in All or Nothing. It's like a confessional almost. Yeah, well, yeah, you get great material. So this is like it. four but, months so, in. Yeah, Trout has a great car ride with, with Fitz. Great, great, great. How many, did you, did you mount a camera <laughs> and shoot? Like, how how did so, you shoot it? No, we didn't, we didn't shoot it. So four months, I mean, the crew had no idea where, where I was. They like waved goodbye to me. Like, you know, I, I saw the light at the end of the tunnel and, and. We're four months in, day after day, and I finally got this. I call back. I said, I think we're going to get something with him. I think we finally moved him. Next day, he's like, no, 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 no. Be so private. But I think that days like that made football life possible. So just to give me a little context, you've done you've done hard knocks with the Bengals, right? The, the with, Jets. With the Jets. And you've done any number of other features well, and docs. Yeah. When we say you've done, he is – Steve Trout has been the director – the two-time Emmy-winning director of Hard Knocks, in in what you know many believe is its greatest season, the Rex Ryan the Rex Jets twenty ten was it the twenty ten Jets? So Trout had done two seasons of Hard Knocks yeah. where he was embedded with a team, and then we were doing this new idea where we were finally, at long last, going to embed for an entire season with a team, which had never been done in NFL films history, even though everyone we've ever worked with had asked us to do it. The Holy Grail. But we figured that the Cardinals really wanted to do it, and we 
thought we had a kind of cracked the code. The code being, we're not going to air it during the season. We're mm-hmm. going to shoot the whole thing and then air it after the season. And this is what became Amazon's All or Nothing. And so Steve and Jay Jackson were and, and Julia Harmon became the three directors of that season-long project with the 2015 Arizona mm-hmm. Cardinals. And what was what was Mark Dalton, the Cardinals PR guy's line about Larry during All or Nothing? Well, yeah, he said uh, Larry has chosen nothing. <laughs> the All or Nothing. But the All has come home to roost, as yeah. you said, Steve, in the form of this film. So, Chris, did you, you stand on the shoulders of, of Steve here? Did you actually get to work with Larry at any point? I did not work with Larry at all. I, I think I did one local... Directed one local shoot at uh, Valley Valley Forge. Forge. All right, but that's better because here's why. So you're out in the field getting the stuff, and now you have these fresh eyes on it when it comes back in the building. So when you start, you've you've heard all that backstory, I'm sure, as as those years unfolded. So you finally get to see this manna from heaven, this footage of Larry Fitzgerald bearing his soul to us. What was that experience like? I think it hit me. um, Steve did the big three-hour interview with Larry very early in the process. Sometimes we like to do them early, and sometimes we like to interview everybody else and get their stories before we go to the subject. But we wanted to get Larry done early in case Larry changed his mind and uh, wasn't comfortable with Steve anymore. So I was finishing up another project at the time and couldn't dive into it, but I got the transcript right away and started reading it and was just fascinated by the words on the page. Um, usually for football, if I don't even deal with the transcript, I just sit down with the raw interview. But this one I read, and I think we were fortunate that Steve had the relationship he did with him because there were things he said in the interview that we were able to go back on future shoots and get really good B-roll for stories that I know without the B-roll would not have made the film. I mean, he talked about the Derek Jeter quote where he says, I'll, I'll open the front door, but you're not getting past the screen. Well, we were able to go back a couple months later and get him opening the front door. He told this story of this 900-year-old door he bought on, a, on one of his amazing trips. And I was in Morocco, uh, Marrakesh. I walking down the street and it was his door. It was on a man's house. And, you know, I don't know what it was. I, I just knocked on his door. At my tour guide translated in Arabic, I said, so would you be willing to sell your sell your door? And the guy looked it's like, it's my, it's my door. And and I told my guy a number and he and he and he started pondering, right? And so he ended up letting me purchase a door. So I took this door back and now it's, it's at my house. It's, I mean, it's unbelievable. The door's probably 600 years old. Every time I see that door now at my house in that moment and, and that memory just kind of floods back into me again. Those kind of experiences are like ones that I live for. I think that relationship that Steve had built going back to... 2015 um and er- slowly each different time he did anything with Larry gaining that trust um that's why we're able to get so much going forward with with football life i mean heck, steve went to london with him for what 36 yeah, hours uh, and back <laughs> yeah under 40 hours so your creative process then was you went through the whole interview and found things that would be interesting to go back and get a visual representation. Yeah, we knew we knew we wanted to get him. We'd we'd done our our homework. We knew he had some kind of map in his home that had red flags of everywhere he'd been in the world. So we knew we wanted to get that. We talked about trying to get something with him in a globe. Um, but but the stories he told and and there were ten that we couldn't fit in the film just for time wise. But there were a couple that we we really honed in on. Like this is a really good 
tells you about Larry and also transitions well into something else. That was unusual to happen because, you know, when we do these films, we usually get a two to three hour interview and we might get one, maybe two other shoots with the subject if we're lucky. But gosh, you must have done half a dozen different. I mean, you went mm-hmm. to London, you went to Minnesota, you went to his house three times, I think. You did the the celebrity charity softball event. So once he said yes, you were in. Yeah. Basically, everything we asked after that, he goes, the doors were open, whatever you need. In- including telling the story of his mother. Yeah. We went in, Chris and I talked, and we knew some stuff about that moment in his life and some other things about he and his mom. I just didn't know if he, how uh, emotive or how honest he'd be in the interview. And, we, you know, it was probably in halfway through the interview, if not a little longer. And to his credit, he was so genuine and so honest with his feelings. Um, it was a very eye-opening moment to see a superstar that honest. Larry Fitzgerald has visited 96 countries. Of all the places he's been, one of the most important and painful was Pittsburgh. It's where he continued to develop as a football player. And it's where he was when his father called to tell him that his mother, who had been battling cancer for years, was on her deathbed. When he got here and found out that it was too late, it really crushed him like it did all of us, but he knew that he had some issues with her over some things that he never settled and he should have. And and I know I stayed on him about calling your mom, calling your mom, but they both were stubborn. I hadn't talked to my mom probably in five or six months. I hadn't communicated with her because I thought she was meddling in my business and I didn't think she should have been in my business which is all inconsequential because it, it, it didn't matter. It shouldn't have ever mattered. It was a very selfish, very selfish time in my life and um, one that I'm not proud of at all. And um, I never got a chance to tell my mom goodbye or I love her. I couldn't imagine me now having children knowing that my child knew that I was sick and just didn't care. I just tried to remind him that uh, to let that go that uh, uh, your mother loved you unconditionally. It took me a long time to, to kind of really, um, I won't say get over it, but be able to cope with it. We all have different approaches, um, I assume, for, for when you're in a situation like that and you're doing a, a biographical interview with a subject and you know there is a, a topic that is deeply personal that you know this person doesn't, readily share or go into any great detail about. And so I, I'm curious to hear everybody's approach to that situation and, and how you attack it differently and is it different for different subjects, starting with with Fitz. I think the biggest thing is that intangible feel of the interview. It's like you're on this boat. You'll know if it's about to capsize if you say this one thing or you or you know that the you're fine. It's why you don't put up front either, because you got to gotta get the tone of, of your subject. But at that point, I think we were fine. And I think over two and a half years of trust, I wasn't going at this from a sensational point of view. I wanted to hear his honest feelings. And I think he understood that from the get-go. He wasn't skeptical about answering, because I think in that three hours, what I tell everyone is the goal is for you to forget all the cameras are there. And there was three on there. There was a crew of 12 people, 15 people. And I think for a three-hour pocket, he forgot they were all there. And he and I were just talking. 
in our phone call with him, you know, he says he doesn't want to wear a wire ever because we're the feds. <laughs> right. And But, I mean, that's true. Like, you know, us as NFL films are a big, in some ways, a monolithic representation of the NFL that, that produces this stuff. And they don't. And, and it's until, you know, when you go to make a documentary about a guy, there has to be trust. And that yeah. that takes time to develop. Yeah, I think there's two kinds as well. It's the kind that Steve developed over the two years. And then there's the the trust that develops during the interview. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Steve said, you, you can't start the interview without that question. You have to, and I think it comes with experience and, and you know, when is the right time? When can I go in? I mean, a lot of times when you do a three hour interview, you're going to go in chronological order. So Larry kind of knew when we get to the college years, yeah. this is coming, but Steve still has to establish that trust even further within the interview setting to go there. If it doesn't go well the first hour, you know, he might not get the, re- the response from Larry that he got. And I think that that comes from experience. And look, we, we knew going into this interview that story. But there, there are times when you do interviews and you, in the course of the interview, you stumble on, on something. And I think that, that might be easier because when you stumble on it, the subject's not surprised that you keep asking the questions about it because you, generally you don't know where you're going. Your first reading of the transcript and looking at the footage, in some ways, you got to know Larry Fitzgerald with more depth than anybody ever has before. I'm just fascinated by it. I mean, in some ways, when we, when we watch a guy, especially when you watch a guy's wire and you see him at work, you know, imagine somebody putting a camera on you while you're working over three or four hours, especially if we make a guy a lot. You can learn a lot about somebody just by their tics and their emotions and sort of in the in-between moments. I want you to play amateur shrink here for a minute because what fascinates me about Larry is... Obviously, his focus and dedication is is bar none to be as good at his craft as he is. And yet he's got this incredible perspective where he can still look outside of himself and be humble and appreciate the world and ask and be curious. What is it about this guy that those two things can coexist? Well, and you mentioned the wire, a wire, and we did get a wire on him at an OTA for about 40 minutes, you know. Helmets, no pads, just running routes. And in that 40 minutes, I mean, he he asked a question every 20 seconds. Before every play, he was asking his position coach, what's the next play? What's the next play? Uh, and he was confirming his responsibility, you know, whether it was what route he was running or what his blocking responsibility was. I mean, this is a guy who's in the league 14 years, and he just, his thirst for knowledge is unquenchable whether it be football or I think that's why he's been to 96, 97 countries. He just wants to learn as much about everything as he possibly can while he's here on earth. He's constantly next to me, peppering me with questions and talking about owner's decisions. You know, Mr. B, why'd you guys do this? Mr. B, why, why won't you do this? He was so intrigued with where you've been, what you do, how do you do it? Why do you do it? What'd you pay for your house? What do you pay for your babysitter? What's your car payment? Who was that person I saw you with a few weeks ago? He's always asking about my family. How many kids you have? What's it like to have five kids, you know? How do you do it? I mean, I used to think, man, I must be really special. He always asks me. He knows all these things about my kids. And then I found out. Hi, Larry. How you doing? He knows that about everybody's kids. How old are you today? Four. You're four? All right. How's your mom? I just saw her earlier today. Gave her a hug. I saw your brother. 
this is right before play on third down and eight in fourth quarter. What's up, Christmas card, a little man cute, man. <laughs> well, just like me, huh? <laughs> People are like, oh, yeah, he's trying to psych you out. It's not like he's really trying to psych me out because sometimes he gets so caught up in a conversation, he misses the snap of the ball. It's one thing to hear a bunch of people say that in interviews and to put it all together and have a nice montage of talking heads. But then he literally, in one of the shoots, walks up to our cameraman, I believe it's Dave Mallard. It was Dave, yeah. Who's wearing a Steadicam and starts quizzing him about how heavy the Steadicam is. And where the weight is displaced. How heavy is that whole rig? 40, 50 pounds or heavier than that? About 42. Where does it distribute the weight on your body? Like, where do you... You feeling your shoulders and your back? Yeah. You can tell in that sequence that he's not patronizing people. He's not belittling you. He's not no. just trying to fill air to like no, keep no, you no, at no. bay. Do you still think he has a fear of failure that drives him? Definitely. It's incredible. Yeah. I don't think this made the film, and I think Carson Palmer talked about it. But the Cardinals, I think they have a film or a meeting each week with the entire team, where they list basically individual errors. And they'll call you out, you know, okay, uh, you had two holding penalties. You dropped three passes. Missed assignments. Missed assignments. Larry is terrified of being called out in front of the whole team. Doesn't want to ever make a mistake. Doesn't want it to be his fault that something goes wrong. And and that's probably why he's going to go down as top two or three receiver of all time. So one thing I I was thinking about is a, a subject like this, who everyone is so positive about, Everyone has nothing but, like, this guy's basically the most interesting, inquisitive, caring Mm -hmm. person in the world, and he's also, like, the best in the world at what he does and one of the best who's ever done it. How do you fashion a story that's Mm -hmm. not just a 44-minute love letter? You know, we know we have the one story um, beat about his mother, but... I think a lot was taken, which he admits now. You can go on this more, Chris, is how... I think he would even say obnoxious and cocky he was his first couple of years. And he changed. Yeah. Kurt Warner tells a story in the film about the first time they had dinner together. And Kurt had been in St. Louis, uh, won a Super Bowl with, you know, Torrey Holt and Isaac mm-hmm. Bruce and Azakim and high powered offense, greatest show on turf. And, you know, he starts talking to Larry and he's given Larry advice. I, th- I think you can do this a little better if you do that. And Larry had been in the league, I think it was his second season when, when Kurt came. And Larry's response was, Kurt, I'm, I'm good enough now. I don't, I don't need to change anything. And, you know, Kurt was floored by it, but he said Larry, Larry got the message eventually. And he said he spent the rest of his career trying to improve. And, you know, he said years later, Larry would ask Kurt, you know, am I as good as Isaac and Tori now? He's like, no, they got, they have Super Bowl ring. They've been to Pro Bowls. You you're, you might be the second best receiver on this team behind Anquan, you know? So, you know, Kurt was trying to get the best out of him, but he was teaching a lesson at the same time. And it's obvious that how much Larry's changed. I mean, yeah. the way those guys look at Larry now, the, the young receivers on the Cardinals, it's, he's completely matured. And it goes back to the candidness for him to sit there and admit it to us too. What do you think happened in that early portion of his career that that altered his viewpoint? I, I definitely think Emmett. Even they they were only together a short short time, just Emmett's career in Arizona. But everything Emmett did, he did. You know, if he had scrambled eggs for breakfast, Larry did. If he got in the cold tub on, after a practice on a Thursday, Larry did. You know, Emmett's the guy who taught Larry you, you take two suits on a road trip. You don't just take one. Nobody wears the same suit two days in a row if you're professional. Um, I think Emmett helped him grow up, and I think c- c- the influence Kurt had on him. Clearly, in those years, um, he grew up really fast. But, you know, I don't know how different that, that would be for 
than than any other guy once he gets his feet wet in the league and he starts to mature and 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 he got to a Super Bowl relatively early in his career and basically almost won it by himself in the fourth quarter. He came that close to winning it. And I think, you know, he's been on a quest to get back and, and finish finish the job ever since. And I think, you know, you realize when you get in that situation, you come that close, what really matters in the NFL are those championships. And he doesn't have one. And he can catch 5,000 passes, but if he doesn't get the Lombardi trophy, he knows there's something going to be missing in his career. And I think that's why he's still playing in year 14. And and it sounds like year 15 next year. Timeout. Football geek out break for a minute. Is that the greatest postseason run in uh, NFL history? Individual? Has oh, to be. Yeah. The one in 08? 2008. Larry Fitz. Seven touchdowns. Four games, seven touchdowns, and I think it's about 600 receiving yards. Almost 600, I think. I mean, if you remember, and, and the, the, the sequence in the film that um, delves into it is, is terrific. No, I mean, and by the we time... Spend they... like five, I remember when Chris showed, showed me the first cut of the film, and it, you know, it was like, well, I mean, we're like eight minutes long. because I, what think, are... I think that was actually the first thing I cut because I knew... When you say cut, you mean edited, not, edited. not removed. Yeah, edited. First thing I edited was that season or that playoff run because I wasn't going to shortchange that. It was inc- it just the, the footage is just incredible to watch. I mean, I've seen those shots, you know, hundreds of times each, but to, to realize he did it in four straight weeks, at game after game, you know, he was making the deciding play game after game after game against the best competition in the league. I mean, I don't know that we'll ever see another run like that. So for all the beats in that sequence, Chris, where you're showing the incredible plays and the the amazing shots and the sound of the plays he did make that he did complete in that four-game run, there's the one that uh, he didn't – the play he didn't make, which ultimately didn't make the show, but it's on the 96-yard James Harrison interception return in the Super Bowl. Harrison literally goes coast-to-coast from one goal line to the other end of the field – and Larry almost catches him. He doesn't. Of course, Harrison scored. But in that out sequence, the looks on the faces of the Steelers, Mike Tomlin, and I think, I forget who else was in there, but they look as if they think Larry still could go back in time and make the play. Like as if they're scared and still can't really believe, like he's some sort of boogeyman that he was going to and still could catch Harrison. I always chase. I always chase. Especially, especially if I feel like I can catch him. I knew I could catch James Harrison. You know, you don't run in. And if Antrell Roll wouldn't get in my way, you know, you know, I might have a ring. No, he's selfish. He got he got a ring already. He won one in, in New York, but he stole mine from me. They always have the get back, coach, right on the sideline. Get back, get back. If they had gotten back, Larry Fitzgerald might have saved that game. I think my eyes were glued on him, the last forty or so yards of the play, um, because he had to negotiate out of bounds around people, and you know. It was interesting that he wasn't shutting it down, and I knew that um, he was possibly the guy that was going to bring James down in the field to play. But I think that that play and his effort on that play uh, speaks to who he is uh, as a football player as much as it, the play that he made uh, at the end of the game. That play tells you everything you need to know about Fitz. I mean, he, he's going to play from start to finish. He's going to give you everything he has. And unfortunately for him, so far in his career, he's come just short of of capturing his goal. What you just underscored is maybe the most maddening part of our jobs 
as editors is that we, you know, you two made a film about Larry Fitzgerald's life and career and possibly what you would describe as his signature moment as a football player. Isn't it? Yeah. Didn't make the final cut. And when I started this film, you know, I mean, there was no way that was not going to be in this film. I'm going to, you know, as incredible as this four, four game run was of what he did catching balls, it's going to, we're going to have this great moment in the Super Bowl where he, you know, he goes 108 yards and almost makes a game winning tackle, game saving tackle at the time. And, you know, 44 minutes goes by really fast with a guy like Fitz. This year, the Super Bowl was going to be in Minnesota. And in Chris, in your early cuts, it was emphasized almost more how much he wanted to play the Super Bowl in Minnesota. And we said, let's be careful just in case yeah. this season goes in the toilet. Yeah, Steve did an interview with him at his Minnesota home uh, on the lake. And Steve said, how far is the stadium from here? And he's like, about 20 miles. I mean, it was, you know, in, in my head, I'm like, this is the perfect ending to this guy's football life is the kid from Minnesota comes home. And, you know, nine, ten years after he almost won a Super Bowl for the Cardinals, he does in his hometown. And he, he has the Jerome Bettis, I'm retiring in my hometown with my Super Bowl trophy ending. But, you know, that didn't happen, which, you know, kind of nice for us because we get to see him play at least another year. It, that moment, let me tell you a funny story about that. I'm doing that interview drenching wet, soaking wet like a wet dog standing on his dock. Why? Because 20 minutes before, he walks out. We're waiting for him. We're set up on the dock. He has his golf simulator in his basement. He's he's not playing golf on a course, but I walk in like 7.30 in the morning. He's dressed like he's playing golf. He's on hole, probably the sixth or seventh hole, downstairs in his basement. He goes, go set up, call me, come get me when you're ready. We set up, I come get him. He walks out. He goes, we're walking back to the dock. Deadbeat, you ever, you ever ride jet ski? Yeah, I rode jet ski. He's like, you fast? I'm like, yeah, I'm fast. <laughs> we walk up. He's got four jet skis. He, goes, he said, pick one. I was like, what's the fastest? He goes, I'm not telling you. So I pick one. He hands me a life jacket. He gets on one. We go out to his lake. He is on the end of the lake. He's still in his golf clothes. And a life jacket. Yeah. He never changed. Never put shoes on. I have jeans on and a collared shirt. I think I took my shoes off, gave my wallet and cell phone to the crew. They watched me like they did back at the facility. Just, oh, they filmed it. I don't know if you're aware of that. I know. So we I do realized, have evidence. I realized this after. So we go to the end of the, the little cul-de-sac of the lake, if you will. He's like, all right, we're going to race. I was like, all right, I'm getting my, you know, I'm my cheesemo. I'm all, I'll, I'll destroy Larry Fitzgerald. He's like, all right, you count. I was like, no, you count. And like, it's too, no, you count. No, you count. So I find, I said, one, two, three, and I floor it because I'm good on a jet ski. And I take off and I'm up by like 20 yards. I'm like, oh my, this is, this is, this is pretty sick. I'm killing Larry they Fitzgerald. Be, they better be taping this. He's then not like, known as a fast guy. So <laughs> then, like a motorboat out of the corner of my eye. He comes cruising up, I mean, going twice as fast as me. Doesn't pass me, cuts right in front of me and drenches me with all the water from the back of his jet ski. I look over, he's crying, laughing. Obviously, he'd done it, you know, many times before. I mean, I, I, I'm wiping water out of my face. We then, like, two 16-year-olds go and do stuff on the lake. He does it three or four more times. Obviously, he set me up. I come back, and they're rolling on the whole thing. And I'm drenched to a core. And I, we had to finish the scene, but he couldn't stop laughing. I mean, look, he's still this guy. He's this 34, 35-year-old guy, but he's a hes a good dude, too. So Larry and Trout is like some sort of buddy cop movie in the making. <laughs> yeah. I, I felt so small. I'm like, oh, how did I fall for this? But I did. What does he have, like an extra button, on, like a secret turbo he had, like, button? He like a V8 in it. I, I don't yeah. know what it is. Well, but you could have picked that one. Have, he have a, he's got to have a secret I not, button on all four of them. How did I not think about that? Well, I fell into it. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll be, I'll be Larry Fitzgerald. 
That is trout. But he's yeah. he say he, he got Pat. It's the Pete. extra gear. He, got he never gets that. caught from behind. You know, he's not the fastest guy in the world, but he never gets I caught. I should have gotten James Harrison's. James Harrison. I would have beat him. <laughs> you talked about how he's around Emmett. He learned a lot. He's around Kurt. He learned a lot. I'm sure Trout. You've seen the younger Cardinals around him. My guess is they they basically genuflect trying to uh, learn at the foot of Larry Fitzgerald. When you guys are doing these shows and you're spending time with these all-time greats, whether it's in person or Chris studying them, what are some things you, you've learned, whether it's from Larry or someone else you, you've made a film about that, that stuck with you after you produced the show? Uh, that's a good question. You know, one thing we saw, Larry wouldn't do a thing after the game until he was dressed to the nines. The tie had to be pulled up. The sleeves couldn't be rolled up. You know, some guys go off after a great win. they are got a shirt collar on. They don't have a coat. He had to be looking to the nines for every single time he, he addressed the media. And just the attention to details were, I mean, just amazing. That he and all superstars and all the elite athletes have, um, that stuck out to me. But I think also with him, he's to see how private that guy is, to see a guy who spends his work life under a spotlight, wanting nothing to do with that spotlight when he's not there. Um, he travels alone. He's part of the film he saw an iceberg alone or he went to morocco alone the first time he ever rode a motorcycle oh right was for four straight hours by himself across the australian outback alone alone i've seen crocodile dundee i mean that's <laughs> that's not safe area i don't he's I got don't... some ricky williams in him that's who i'm yeah. thinking of when you're telling me these stories yeah, yeah but i think I, I don't i don't know ricky so i don't want to go into that but i think larry loves the the hunt for knowledge for adventure adventure and he doesn't want the spotlight doesn't want to he's got great friends he does travel with friends in england he was playing golf with buddies but he likes sometimes that solo adventure definitely and i think you asked that question what you learn about about the, these subjects i i kind of compare him a little i did roger stallback's football life several years ago and uh i think there's a lot in common i mean probably two of the most revered players in NFL history, especially by their opponents. I mean, Larry, Larry hasn't worn a wire in a game, but we've had players' opponents wired, and, and you can get a feel for how much opponents revere Larry Fitzgerald. And I think Stallback was the same way. Mm. But I think when you get to know them, I get two things come. They're, they're just they're regular people. Yeah. And, you, you you know, when you grow up just seeing them on TV, you, you never see them like that. You think they're these, you know, superheroes. But they're, they're regular people, and they're hyper-competitive. He's very normal. He's an incredibly funny guy. Um, but you got to get past that screen door. Speaking of sc screen doors, I think um, we should open uh, our door to the guru and uh, hear his thoughts on fits did you have that segue written down no i was really struggling horrible <laughs> if you thought the verbal segue was good wait till you hear the musical one. <laughs> Ooh! hit the music mike the goat and the guru on the set of the NFL Films Podcast for the first time. Welcome back, Greg. Good to be here. I'm a little nervous because I'm with Steve Trout. I don't know if I can measure up to that standard. It's been very difficult for Keith and I today. 
What standard does what standard does trout have? Jet skiing. <laughs> trout. Thank you. This has to be my A plus game because you know um, I'm breaking out in a cold sweat. The pride of James Madison University. We'll walk you through it, Greg. Sorry, I had to drop that. Uh, the, the Dukes. By the time this podcast airs, we'll know if they're the two-time defending, defending national champion in FCS. But today we don't know that. We don't. And you're doing a great job holding it together with Thank the you. with the tension of the potential Thank dynasty, you. the birth Forming. of the dynasty. Yeah. Thank you. Thank well you. Well done. But let's get back to the topic at hand here. Larry Fitzgerald, Greg, you watched the Football Life film. I did. We're going to start with a clip that did not make the show, a bit of an analysis sequence with Chris Collinsworth and Kurt Warner talking about Larry and the attributes he brought to the wide receiver position. Larry was one of the first to introduce us to, if it's a tie, I'm winning, right? That, that when I'm covered, I'm open, that, that kind of theory. Uh, that just because a guy is standing right next to me, I'm still going to get the ball. I'm going to out-rebound that guy. I'm going to get body position and make sure only I catch it. Trust me, if you throw it, Carson Palmer, it's not getting intercepted. I may not come down with it. There's only two options that are going to happen. I'm going to catch it, probably score a touchdown, and, or it's going to hit the ground. I tr- Trust me. And when quarterbacks know they don't have the possibility of throwing an interception, they'll throw it to you all day long. He was one of the best above-the-rim players that there's ever been. And he introduced us to a whole list of receivers that are currently getting drafted in the top 10 of NFL drafts that are rebounders. When I first came to Arizona, Josh McCown was here. And you know, I was used to playing with Isaac and Torrey. And for me, open was you would see two feet a separate, you would see a gap between the DB and, and Isaac and Torrey. And you go, okay, that's what open looks like. And then I got here with Larry and, and Anquan, and they were different receivers. And, you know, there'd be times where the DB is, like, right in their lap. And I'd watch Josh throw it. And I'm like, what are you doing throwing it? He's covered. And, of course, Larry, they'd make the catch. And, and I'm like, I'd go in there, and I'd get that same relationship. And I'd go, nope. And I'd throw the check down. And he's like, Josh would tell me, you got to just trust him. You, you got to understand that open is different. And if you can throw it a certain way, nobody else is going to get the football. So we had so much fun being able to, you know, use my accuracy and his athleticism and throw balls in what I called educated forces. You know, was that most quarterbacks would say or coaches would say, well, you're forcing that ball to Larry. For me, it was an educated force because I knew I was forcing it, but I was forcing it in a position where I knew only Larry could get it. And then the odds went way up, and it became uh, not only a, you know, not a force anymore, but it became a good throw to throw it to Larry when he was in a position to go and make one of those acrobatic catches. Two things kind of popped into my head. Number one, even though he was a top-five pick, I remember when he came out, there were a lot of questions about him in some people's minds because he wasn't a burner and because he made a lot of contested catches, and that really wasn't in vogue yet in the NFL. So when he came out, you know, it wasn't a case where people said, oh, he's, he's a can't miss because he can do X, Y, and Z. What he did really well was catch the ball, which obviously you want to do as a receiver, but he wasn't an explosive moving athlete. And it's funny seeing some of the clips from Pitt in the show, 
you know, it reminded me, you don't, you don't look at him and go, wow, look at that guy move. But he did have good size, obviously. The second thought that came into my mind, listening to Kurt Warner about, you know, educated forces and contested catches, or as they're now called by a lot of people, 50-50 balls, was he played a good number of years of his career with arguably two of the most accurate quarterbacks in the last 20 years, Kurt Warner and Carson Palmer. And you need that kind of quarterback for that kind of receiver. We talk about high pointing, and in, in, in a nutshell, it means when the ball's in the air, he goes up and gets it. Is that not, Right. It's one of those things where if, if you said that to me, I'd go, well, yeah, every, if you're in the NFL well. and you're a receiver, everybody can do that. So give me some context. Like, well, how rare is that skill and how rare is his ability to execute it? Well, there's a body control element to that that not everybody else has. Because don't forget, you are running downfield. Normally, this happens when you're on the move. You're not in a standing position. So you're on the move. And then you have to react to the ball. Now, obviously, this is practiced, as Kurt Warner indicated in the clip. So it's practiced. It's not random. He doesn't just throw the ball and hope that Larry Fitzgerald goes and gets it. So they they decide based on the position of the corner how the ball's going to be thrown. You're throwing it to a receiver when there's a defender literally right next to him in his pocket. So you have to decide what kind of throw is it. Are you leading him because you think you have enough space to lead him? Are you throwing it up higher so he can jump up and get it? Or are you throwing it behind him for a back shoulder because the reality is a corner can't play both balls. He can't play the big ball down the field and the back shoulder at the same time. It's just not humanly possible. When you watch the film, Fitz had that skill set in high school. That's what oh, yeah. is so crazy. We talked about it earlier that he was doing these things when he was 15 years old, and which, which it almost makes you realize that it's not a learned skill. You just have that gift. And so- well, I think sometimes today when, when people evaluate receivers, because everybody wants explosive, everybody wants fast, everybody wants guys who can score touchdowns theoretically from anywhere on the field, that sometimes the art of catching a football, I don't want to say it's overlooked, but it doesn't seem to be the first thing that people talk about when they're talking about a receiver. And obviously it probably should be because that's what you have to do first and foremost. And, you know, he catches the ball as well as anyone. Uh, I know, you know, in, in the film it was talked about that he and Chris Carter... Uh, are the two guys that people really talk about and think about as far as great hands. And, you know, it's again, it's always hard to say they're the only two, but certainly Larry Fitzgerald, you don't really remember him dropping passes. No. No. He never does. <laughs> Chris, you Chris mentioned, well, you mentioned in, in high school, and, and Larry's, Larry's dad we interviewed for the film, and Larry grew up as a Minnesota Vikings ball boy when Denny Green was the head coach there, and Denny Green told Larry's dad when Larry was in high school, that he's good enough to play in the NFL. I mean, Denny Green obviously was a great evaluator talent, but there's something ironic there. Denny Green is the guy who was the Cardinals coach that drafted Fitz yep. at a time when the Cardinals really needed a quarterback. And he took a lot of heat for taking Fitz instead of a quarterback. Um, and people said it's because he had this relationship with, with him as a kid. And it was, fun. you know, he did a radio show with Larry Sr. Wait a minute. So did Fitz. Did Fitz come out? He did not come out the same year as Eli and Rivers and Big Ben. He came out the year before. No, no, he did. He came out 04. It was, 04? Yeah. Was it 04? So, yeah, it came out 04. Yeah, they could have. Yeah. yeah, and I think they had the third pick. So they were going to, they could have had so, one of them. Wasn't Robert so, Gallery the second, that was the second issue. pick that year? 
There's the a Raiders. Weird, yeah, it was. Oh, so it he was. came out of four, not 03. Oh, okay. So it went. So if he came out of four, then then it was then so Eli was, was the Eli, first pick. Eli, Eli Gallery, Gallery, Fitz, and Rivers. Rivers and, and Roethlisberger didn't go eleven. until eleven. Right, right. The Cardinals passed up Rivers and Big Ben. Now here's the question: <laughs> Did they make the right pick? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're talking about one of the greatest wide receivers of all time. But you're also talking about two you're, rings. You're from Pittsburgh, so we know your answer. Well, 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 no, but I am a huge Larry Fitzgerald. So is he. Imagine Mr. Pitt going to Pittsburgh. I think this is a. I think no. I, I think this is a fair question to ask Greg because. They got a Hall of Fame receiver, but they did And the didn't, face of a franchise. And the face of their franchise. And, yeah, the, probably the greatest player in the history of the Cardinals. But they passed up on, you can argue what Rivers is. We know that, that Ben went on to win rings and, and, and almost certainly will be in the Hall of Fame. Did they make the right pick? <laughs> well, that's easy now to, you know, to look back. Well, I know, um, but it's also fun. You know, I, I think that most people would say that if you feel strongly about a quarterback, that you take the quarterback. Uh, I, I don't think that that's a profound scoop here to say that. I think that's what people would say. I think it's no, fascinating I mean, what he said, what Greg said, though, about it took the precision passing of Warner and Palmer to help unlock what Fitzgerald was. So if you're going to play alternate reality, it's you, you wonder... Fitzgerald with a different guy throwing to him, or got a series of guys over such a well, such a long career. Fitz has played with, I well, think, bad guys fourteen too. different, yeah. Yeah. sixteen different quarterbacks, and so Fitz uh, is the constant. I, I don't there, think, well, I don't think there, those guys there aren't are a lot of them that are going to be knocking on Canton's door. Like, right. like yeah. Warner I don't think Kurt Warner, fair point. Well, think, the other yeah. thing too is even though he he didn't have great time speed, over my years here at Films, I remember talking to different cornerbacks who played against him, and they always said that he was faster than you thought when mm-hmm. they played. I mean, I remember... Game speed. Uh, yeah, yeah. I remember having those conversations and, and hearing that. and um, A lot like Jerry Rice. Yeah. I mean, Jerry Rice, I think, timed 4-6, was it, wasn't it? I think Somewhere four, seven, there. I just looked it up. 4-7-1. Why is that? Is that, is that what Rice timed or is that yeah. what Fitz timed? Six, Fitz is 4-6-3. See, 4-6-3 four, four, in today's world, in, in the world of 2017 going into 2018, would be viewed as slow for that's a wide a receiver. tight end speed these days. Yeah. How much is speed overrated I, I in think, a wide receiver position? That was my question. I, I think— Because I don't think Antonio Brown burns it up. I think uh, speed is, is, is overrated. That's a relative term, you know, how much. But I think that the ability to work in smaller space— is far more important, meaning the ability to get in and out of breaks, the ability to catch the football, the ability to make catches with people right around you is very right. important. But I think short area quickness and explosiveness is far more important than straight line speed. Except Julio Jones was sub 4-4. Four, four. Yeah, I, I think I asked a leading question. There. Yeah. I would rephrase that as, is speed overrated for a wide receiver? Obviously, it's great to have speed. Right. It's great to have Julio Jones's package. Or well, mega, there's also not a lot of Julio Jones either. Right. right. The yeah, notion so- that catching a football is underrated, though, is, is fascinating. And, and I think it's obvious on Sundays. There's guys where you would say... He's an NFL receiver. He should make that catch. Well, the thing is, is guys who tend to be burners, and you can go back to Deshaun Jackson, you can look at Will Fuller in Houston. Everybody gets enamored with them. I mean, Deshaun was a second-round pick. Will Fuller, much later now, last year was a first-round pick solely because he could run. 
But there's limitations to those guys. What they add for a team is what every team wants. They add a dimension, a dimension that every team likes to have because they believe that speed dictates coverage. So therefore, it's a dimension every team wants, but the player himself isn't necessarily a great, complete player. He just brings a much-needed dimension. Which of those dimensions can a guy add once his career begins? Well, you can't add speed in terms of, I mean, can a guy become a little faster? But a guy who's not explosive will not become, like Larry Fitzgerald was not going to become explosive, straight line explosive, you know, just by you know, practicing track on, on track and field. So, no, you can't add that. You can add short area quickness. Can, you, can your hands get better? Absolutely. And if you talk to coaches, they'll tell you that you can teach guys how to catch a football if they're not great at it. So we're talking about the different dimensions of receivers. One of the neat things these, got, these guys got into in the show is the multi-dimensions of Larry Fitz as his career evolved. Well, yeah, and, and he made a change halfway through his career. Yeah. Late in his career, yep. spurred by B.A., Bruce Arians, when Arians got to Arizona after coaching in Pittsburgh. In 2013, Bruce Arians became the Cardinals' head coach. One of his first decisions was to move Larry Fitzgerald from a split end to a slot receiver. I felt like it was a, a slight initially. Like, he doesn't think I'm good enough to do this anymore trying to run me out, you know, those type of thoughts go to your mind. We moved him into the slot receiver. You know, he had a ton of questions because he did not want to fail. You didn't like the way I ran that? I thought it was a little flat because that made you chop your feet too much. And he was afraid of making that transition because it was totally, totally new to him. As we grew together, uh, there were very, very rough spots. Larry, break in. Why'd you break out? Of me on oh man, breaking you my score. They cleared the whole middle out. He saw where it was heading. You know, I said, hey, call, call Reggie, call Hines. They got 80, 90 balls later in their career. You still got years left. I talked to Hines Ward and I, I talked to Reggie Wayne. And both of them told me the same thing. I want you to let him know and you show him that you are completely committed to what he's doing. Just explain it one more time to me, coach. So it's going to be Trout two. right, Trout right, FBL, FBL. 70 go then things are going to look good for you. Instead of lining up outside the numbers, running deep patterns and relying on his jumping ability, Fitzgerald was now running more shallow crossing routes in the congested middle of the field and exposing himself to more big hits. He used to joke that being in the slot, getting banged up, having guys hit you, running short slants, that's Anquan Bolden's job. It became Larry Fitzgerald's job. I think it is the strongest argument for him being a Hall of Famer. Not only the great things he did, but he was asked to sacrifice. He was asked to do things he wasn't particularly comfortable with. He wasn't even that good in the slot his first year. But man, did he improve. So two of the players Bruce Arians mentions there are Heinz Ward and Reggie Wayne, who he had coached in Indianapolis and in Pittsburgh. What is that position, this slot receiver position that Fitz was being asked to move to and why why was he be? asked to move and why yeah. was it different yeah. well, why was it <laughs> well I, I can't tell you what was in Bruce's head but I'm sure he saw a receiver who he probably felt was in a little bit of decline in terms of his movement because on the outside you have to win what we call individual isolation routes because even in zone coverage if you're running routes outside the numbers the corners essentially match up. It's just different technique, but they match up. 
as good as Fitz was, you can't always rely on contested catches. There are times you've got to win. You've got to separate. And he was probably slowing down in Bruce's mind. So now you go inside. There's more bodies now you have to deal with. You run routes that have much more of a two-way go, meaning that you can work either right or left because you're more in the middle of the field. You have to have a better feel for understanding coverages because you have to react to more people. So if it's zone, you have to have a real sense of what that zone is because you have to find voids between people. As someone who watches tape of every game, were you surprised to see Fitz make this change so late in his career and thrive the way he has? No, because I'd interviewed him and I remember interviewing him years ago and he spent a lot of time when we were not when we were off camera because I was actually asking him questions about playing wide receiver. He spent a lot of time talking about splits and the importance of receiver splits and what that means for specific routes. So, you know, I knew that he really thought the position. The big issue when you work inside Well, there's a couple of issues. Number one, you have to be a blocker because more and more teams in the NFL now feature what we call 11 personnel, meaning three wide receivers, as their almost base personnel package. And so you run out of that. And if you're in the slot, you have to block. You can't not be a blocker. And receivers feel differently about that. We always hear, we always used to hear with Heinz Ward, he's the best blocking wide receiver in the NFL to the point where it almost became a a, a cliche. Well, you have to block... Depending on the specific run play, safeties, linebackers, or even defensive ends, depending on the run play. And if you're obviously blocking linebackers or defensive ends, you can't just stand there. You actually have to exert some physicality. And not every receiver is, one, willing to do that or, two, capable of doing that. But Fitz? He's proven to be. You know, look, you don't know that until he does it, but I think based on, you know, his attitude, his approach to the game, uh, you make that decision. That's the decision Bruce Arians made being with him. And we didn't get into this in the film because we didn't have time, but Fitz did not want to make this move. No, I mean, this was a big blow to his ego. That's what I mean, Adrian Wilson talked about it in the interview. Like, Fitz would call him and say, am I not good enough to play outside anymore? And I think we, we talked before about how competitive he was. A big reason why this really annoyed him is he wants to face the other team's best corner. He wants to go That's against the number point. one guy. He doesn't want to play against a nickel corner in the slot. Big deal, I beat their third best corner. He wants to f- go up against Richard Sherman and run past him and make a catch. And and I think it, it shows, you know, we talked about how he matured. It's another example of, of doing something that's better for the team, even though individually, you know, probably wasn't something he wanted to do. You know what do. it reminded me of, by the way? In 1994, when Mike Shanahan became the offensive coordinator of the 49ers, uh, maybe it was in 94, whatever year, but they, that's the year they won the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. He might have gotten there it sooner. It was 94. Yeah, but I can't remember oh, when he Mike got, got yeah, there. Yeah, he did. Yeah, I think he was there sooner. Okay, but he, he was a little more expansive in his formational usage than the previous coaching staff when he got there, and, and he wanted Jerry Rice to play in the slot. Not 100%, but he, he had formations where he wanted Jerry Rice in the slot, and Jerry Rice didn't want to do that either, but... They did do it, and Jerry Rice caught touchdowns from the slot. Wait, break this, break in it the down. Super Bowl. To, because, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right. I think yeah. the last young six touchdowns right. in the Super Bowl yeah. was Rice in the slot. Well, 
the reason why coaches also want to do it is because of matchups. You know, football has increasingly become matchup football. And while Larry Fitzgerald might have wanted, as as any athlete would, who's great at his craft, play against the best, the reality is you bring Larry Fitzgerald in the slot to play against slot corners who more often than not are smaller. Uh, and so he has a size advantage, uh, and more often than not, are not the best of the, of the group of, of three or four corners that may play in a game. And now as a, as a coordinator, as an offensive play caller, you have advantages. You feel you can work with, with your slot receiver, and he can win in the middle of the field. Okay, but break it down further. Why isn't a Josh Norman or a Richard Sherman moving to the slot along with Some guys do, but a lot of corners are very used as they learn the position to having the sideline. And when you don't have a sideline, that just makes the position totally different. Not everybody can do that. So the sideline, you know, I've heard coaches say the sideline is your friend. I mean, nothing can be caught out of bounds. It's not a catch. So it's really hard for guys who've never played in the slot to just say, let's go in the, you go in the slot and play him. It's That's a, hard. It's interesting that it works both ways, offensively and yep. defensively. And you need both. In, in this day and age, you need a nickel. You need a corner who can play in the slot. And you need a wide receiver who can play in the slot. With, without question. And there are some guys who made a living playing in the slot. Marcus Colston was a guy who was, I think, a seventh-round draft choice out of Hostra. You get into a system with Sean Payton, who has an expansive mindset in terms of formations and play design and route concepts. The guy made a living working inside against linebackers and safeties. Mm -hmm. So where do you land? Let's wrap this thing up. Where do you land on Larry Fitzgerald as historically um, in his own era? And, you you know, we were joking before, but you know, you may have passed up on Philip Rivers and Ben Roethlisberger, but you can you can sleep well at night knowing you yeah, drafted well, a, a Hall of Fame wide receiver. I where, mean, where would you rank him right now? You mean as far as all time? Yeah, someone says, give me your top five. Wow. I, no, You're putting I'm me just, on the spot again. This time we are putting you on the spot. Right, right. I mean, Trout, what are you trying to do here? Hot well, seat. Hot you seat. Know? This is this is the guru. We light. We His li- seat is hot. Greg's gonna stop. He's gonna stop coming because I want to know. <laughs> I want. I'll do this. Don't rank him. Well, is, I'm a big hit. Is he is he in your top five? I've never done that, so I'd have to start. Th- so who who? Well, obviously we know Jerry Rice is okay. would be in anybody's top five. Okay. I'm trying to th- think of receivers now. Randy Moss, such a politician. Yeah. You won't even answer the question. Well, He's I, just I, way more studied than you are willing yeah. to. I am every man. This I want. I want. Trout, to, this, I, this isn't talk. This, this isn't talk radio. Rice, Swan and Stallworth, Heinz Ward, Antonio Brown, and you can rotate those four in any order. No, my point is, my point is, isn't there argument to place him as the second best wide receiver of all time? Of all time, is there an argument? You mean after Rice? Yes. Well, it's funny you say that because I've had coaches say to me, and this is interesting, you guys probably don't even think about this guy. I've had coaches say to me that Sterling Sharp was better than Jerry Rice, and if he didn't get hurt, we'd be be talking about him as the best receiver to ever play. You could say that that, that about anything. Just try pinning down Cosell. Gary Clark. (laughs) You'll never do it. Gary Clark (laughs) would have been the best player if he was better. Who's I mean, gonna, no, no, who, we're not who, talking about skills. But you're skirting the issue again. Would you wow. say there? I am. They're intentionally. This guy's a dog with a bone. I'm intentionally skirting. So there the is a sponsor for this segment. Yeah. Yeah. Is there an argument, yes or no, to Larry being number two? I, I'm fine with a no, but I, I want to. I want to get an answer. Is there an argument? Sure. Go sure. Ahead, there's make an it. argument. <laughs> <laughs>
Sure, feel Excellent. free to make it. Right, let's, let's, and now we know why Larry Excellent. Fitzgerald. Yeah, he avoided trout for so long. Ah, and then, and then, come full circle. And then, and then, and then soaked him with his jet ski four That's times. right. That's right. I will say this, though. I mean, when you perform at a really high level for such for a long, long time, not many guys do that. I mean, that's a real select group. Longevity is, uh, is underrated. It is. Like catching the football. Like catching the football. Sterling Sharp had the best line I ever heard about that. He said, you got to catch the football. They can, they can sign a dog to go down there, pick it up in his mouth, and run it back. But right. you got to catch it. That's what you're there wow. for. Wow. On air. Wow. Well, that's good. Uh, you know, because we had a dog with a bone. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Let's, uh, let's end there. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for coming back, Greg. Please don't hold the uh, the, the expressed opinions of all of our guests gonna, against us. We're going to get a call from Cosell's people. Uh, yeah, please don't have the trout back. The guru. Huh? Let's hit it. Thank you to our engineer, Mike Kennedy, today. His first go on the podcast. Well done, Mike. Rich Owens producing. Thanks to Steve Trout and Chris Barlow, the producers of Larry Fitzgerald of Football Life. Which you can see on NFL Network, On Demand. Go find it. It's a great one. And, of course, Greg Cosell. Greg, thanks for coming by. We'll talk to you again soon. From the home of America's football movies in mighty Mount Laurel, New Jersey, I'm Paul. I'm Keith. And this has been the NFL Films Podcast. Take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.